welcome to Batanzers, a baseball podcast. And for the first time in 2021, we welcome you into our lives to talk some baseball. And we got a lot to cover today, Ryan. I'm Max Tanzer with Ryan Medeiros. The Padres, a very active team earlier this week. We'll get to them a little bit later. Let's start out with one of the more quieter trades, but a move that would still be made and I think is very significant. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays traded left-handed relief pitcher Jose Alvarado to the Philadelphia Phillies. The Los Angeles Dodgers also involved trading a player to be named later and first baseman Dylan Paulson to the Tampa Bay Rays and the Phillies trading left-handed pitcher Garrett Clevenger to the Los Angeles Dodgers. So we got a three-team trade here. Obviously, the biggest name right now in terms of active big leaguers is Jose Alvarado going to a Phillies bullpen that struggled mightily last season. What are your thoughts on this trade, Ryan? Well, Max, it's not the solution for the Phillies, but it's definitely a, a starting piece for them. We look back to Alvarado's stats. He threw 70 games for the Tampa Bay Rays, 2.39 ERA with 80 strikeouts and 64 innings. He was top 10% in the league in expected slugging, weighted on base, K percentage, and expected ERA. So with the Rays, he showed flashes of being a dominant reliever. Obviously, as of late, in 2020, he had some injuries. 2019, he showed some inconsistency with an ERA of 4.8. Past year in 2020, his ERA was up to 6 in 9 games. But again, not too long ago, 2018, he showed flashes of being a dominant guy. So if you're the Phillies, you take a flyer on him. Tampa Bay had so many arms in their pen. Uh, but again, if you're the Phillies, you're looking for any sort of improvement. So uh, you got to be at least somewhat optimistic if you're a Phillies fan. Yeah, I agree here. And I think this is a good first step, like you said. You know, it's not Liam Hendricks or anyone like that. But Alvarado, I think you insert him, and he's already one of the top, if not the best, relievers in that bullpen right now. I mean, if you even look back, one of the nastiest pitches in baseball from a left-handed reliever with that two-seam fastball. I think he'll get a chance to be in some more higher leverage situations, still just 25 years old, a good piece for them. And then Clevenger, uh, heading over to the Dodgers, had a small sample size with the Phillies this season. Is another guy who potentially could be an impact player in the Dodgers' bullpen this season so those a couple of pieces that we could play see play some big roles for major league teams this season now let's move in to those Padres the Padres made some major moves this week and really we're starting to set things set the catalyst to start things moving a little bit quickly here this offseason it started to slow down here in the back end of this week but the first one acquiring Blake Snell from the Rays for catcher Blake Hunt right-handed pitcher Cole Wilcox uh, right-handed pitcher Luis Patino who's the number three overall prospect uh, in the Rays organization right now number 23 in Major League Baseball and then former top prospect and catcher Francisco Mejia uh, and then also acquiring Yu Darvish on uh, Victor Carantini and middle infielder signing Awesome Kim from the KBO to a four-year $28 million contract. Before we get into those specific deals, Brian, the Padres being very aggressive right here. It's very reminiscent of A.J. Preller, who's still their GM from 2014 going into 2015 when they acquired Will Myers, Matt Kemp, the Upton brothers, Craig Kimbrell, James Shields. That one didn't work out. But I have reason to think this one should work out a little bit differently. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, the, well, the, the difference is, and we talked about this, as you mentioned, the Padres have a nice young core of players. Back in 2014, it was kind of a like a, a mixing, matching, kind of a weird mix of older veteran players they were bringing in. And while they brought in Darvish, who's a veteran guy, they the two guys they brought in, in Snell and Kim, are both fairly young. Kim, a 25-year-old, Snell only 28. So it's not like they're bringing in a bunch of veteran guys with big contracts that could easily go the wrong direction. 
I think in this situation, they're building around a nice core of Tatis, Machado. They have Hosmer under contract for a while. Grisham is still young, just to name a few of their young stars. They have Lamette in the rotation. So they're basically building off of that now. That's not what they had in 2014, as we had talked about. So they already have a nice young core. They already are a good team, as they showed last season. So I don't see this going in the wrong direction. I'd be very surprised if they're not one of the wild card teams, at least next season. Yeah, and you hit it on the head right there. They have a core. They made the playoffs last season. There's reason to think that adding will actually make an actual or play an actual result into their success next season versus in 2014 going into 15, you didn't really have anything to base this off of. And you were just kind of pushing a bunch of vet veterans together, trying to bet that it would work out. Uh, not only that, but their payroll now is at $165 million, which is still well below, below the luxury tax right now. And I think a lot of people were worried that they were going to give up too many farm players. And while they did give up some decent pieces, they still held on to Mackenzie Gore, Capuzano, their catching prospect as well. Still have one of the better catching prospects in Major League Baseball. Uh, this is probably, besides the Los Angeles Dodgers, the team that's in the best position right now. So much flexibility in their farm system, uh, in their payroll, and have one of the best teams on paper right now going into this season. I think this was a no-brainer move by A.J. Preller, and he knows that if he's going to make it deep into the postseason, he's going to have to beat the Dodgers. And by being the Dodgers, these moves were absolutely necessary. And if you look at the projected war numbers, they're very close right now. So this works, and they may not be done yet, adding to their bullpen as well. One thing that you kind of touched upon here and that is so unbelievable with these trades by A.J. Preller is he held on to their top three, not not actually, not literally their top three prospects because they did trade Patino, but who many believe the Padres read their top three prospects, which is Campusano, as you mentioned, Mackenzie Gore, and C.J. Abrams, the shortstop prospect, who I don't know if you mentioned, but he is in that core group of their top prospects that they desperately wanted to keep. They didn't have to trade any of those three guys to acquire Darvish and Snell, which is pretty unbelievable, and you have to give Preller a ton of credit. He didn't even have to give up a whole lot for Darvish. I'll know we'll touch upon that financial situation a little bit later when we break down that trade. But uh, for Snell, they, the Rays did get a haul. I do want to touch on that a little bit because um, they got Mejia, they got Patino, but we'll talk about a little bit of that when we break down the logistics of that trade. Let's get right into that, actually. That Snell deal, you mentioned Patino, Francisco Mejia also acquired Blake Hunt, who slots into the Rays' number 24 spot, and Cole Wilcox, who slots into their number 8 spot. I think, before we get into the Padres and acquiring Blake Snell, I think people were concerned about them giving up Blake Snell, but knowing their financial situations that they have to be a little bit more creative. The fact that they landed the number 23 prospect in baseball, a guy who slots into their number eight and a catcher to help bolster a position that they struggled with last season, I think is a really good situation for them. And I think this is a really good move for them. Of course, giving up Blake Snell, who is a franchise type player, won the Cy Young in 2018 is very, very difficult, but Patino has the stuff to be better than Blake Snell, in my opinion, in a couple of years from now, especially with, the pitching gurus and the analytics department they have over there in Tampa Bay. Well, you're not rated the number 23 prospect in baseball for nothing. I mean, this is tons of scouts who have watched tons of players over their careers, painstakingly, you know, grading these players. So Patino obviously is very highly touted and he has a ton of potential. He hasn't quite shown it at the major league level yet in a small stint with the Padres last season. But another guy in this trade I want to touch on, you mentioned him briefly, Francisco Mejia. He was one of the top 10 prospects in baseball not too long ago. He, you know, fantastic hitting streak in the minors. I believe it was over 50 games or so back when he was with the Indians. Uh, he was part of that Brad Hand trade that brought him over to the Padres and now going over to the Rays, who 
you know, Mike C is behind the plate, Max, but I know <laughs> you know as well as anybody that Mike C isn't the best hitter. So uh, maybe Mejia, who has had a few defensive issues, can learn a lot more from him. Mike C, one of the best defenders behind the plate uh, in his limited playing time. So I think them being able to split time behind the plate, Mejia being able to learn from a veteran catcher will ultimately probably uh, the Rays will hope will help him blossom behind the plate. And I think his bat, it's just a matter of time for him to break out because he's always had the hit tool throughout his time in the minor leagues. And he has a really high ceiling uh, and potentially even a low floor at the plate as well. Yeah, 2019 in 79 games, the most games he's played in a single season, hit 265. The OPS up at 754, left the yard eight times as well. I think for a catcher, that's a dream right there, especially for the Rays and the offensive production they've gotten behind the plate last season. They had Darno in 19, who was uh, very productive. But I think the point here is they're going to take a chance on him. And with the Rays, you know, their ability to transform players or bring them back in their prime or find this ceiling for them, I think they could do the same here with Mejia and have him split time with Zanino, making sure he doesn't play every day. Mejia is a switch hitter. You could platoon him with Zanino if you would like, but I almost think Mejia might get more opportunities to play than Zanino does at this point because I think this is their guy, and it's a good bat for a team that struggled with consistency offensively last season. Patino, I want to touch on a little bit too. I think this is Ray's galore. Uh, 88th percentile fastball spin, high spin rate slider as well. The fastball, 97 to 100. Uh, this is what the Rays like with their pitchers. I was looking at some highlights from strikeouts. All the top of the zone with fastballs, 97 to 100. That's what the Rays like. Um, very similar to Tyler Glass now in a way. I think three pitches, hard fastball, good breaking ball as well. And I think that should benefit him going to a team that has been known to be able to create these pitchers. And he already has this high ceiling, and I think they can extend that ceiling even more uh, under their wings. All right, let's talk about Blake Snell now, because this is obviously the big piece of this trade going over to the Padres right now. And before these moves were made, the Padres definitely needed at least one more pitcher, whether that be Trevor Bauer or some sort of middle-of-the-rotation type guy. After losing Clevenger to Tommy John surgery, he'll be out for the entirety of 2021. They go on and bring in Blake Snell, who you can instantly at that point maybe slot in as your number one or number two behind Lamette at that point. Uh, 2020 had a really good season, a 3-2-4 ERA, struck out 63 batters, 50 innings pitched after a uh, little bit of a step back in 2019 after his Cy Young year. I like this move for the Padres. It's an affordable deal for them, too. What are your thoughts on it? Well, it's a great deal for the Padres. I mean, if you want to really dig down deep into this, there's two sides to Blake Snell. And I know we're going to get into a little, little discussion here. In 2018, same year that Alvarado was really ironically, Blake Snell won 21 games, had a 189 ERA, struck out an astronomical 221 batters in 180 in two-thirds innings. So that is the Blake Snell that the Padres hope they're getting, or at least somebody close to that, because he has shown that he can be absolutely dominant. Last season, we saw his stuff show just as well, about 84% strikeout rate. We saw the, the high whiff percentage, 86% whiff percentage. And he has a high fastball velocity comparatively to the rest of the league, the average starter. And he has a high fastball spin. So that's a typical Rays guy like you mentioned with Patino. They like those high fastball spin. But if you wanted to really break it down, uh, the Rays, again, this is what they do. They trade away these pitchers. And if you're the pause. You take advantage of that. If you're A.J. Preller, the Rays, they say, well, you don't want three years left on this guy's deal. We'll take an ace-type pitcher for three more years. We have our young core players set together, and we'll take the Blake Snell that we hope we get the same guy that we had uh, the Rays had in 2018. And uh, he's an excellent pitcher overall. Even in his down year, you mentioned he took a step back in 2019. He still struck out 147 batters in 100 and 
seven innings. So he strikes out he strikes out a ton of guys. The main concern with him, and this is the other side of Blake Snell that I want to touch upon, is his stamina and his health. He has never thrown over 200 innings. And when you're talking about an ace-type pitcher, you almost automatically assume that this is a guy that throws about 200 innings, maybe 190-plus per year. The most innings he's ever thrown was since that 2018 season. That was only 180 and two-thirds innings, as I mentioned. So this isn't like you're getting a workhorse type, like a Lance Lynn who's going to throw you a ton of innings. We know what Blake Snell can do well, and that is strike out a lot of batters and have really good stuff in a limited sample size, but you're not going to get that workhorse type pitcher who's going to give you a lot of stamina. He can say whatever he wants. He can say how the Rays didn't utilize him properly. But as Max and I can attest to here with some stats you're going to bring up, that might not be the case. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I think it's a misperception. And I think people are over-dramatizing that one game, Game 6 of the World Series, where, you know, we all have to admit, was a tough look for the Rays in that situation. Just about 70 pitches. It was absolutely dominating. Uh, Snell did not go deeper than five and two-thirds of an innings pitched at all last season during the regular year. And sure, Game 6 was a tough look, but it's not like this was a common occurrence last year where he was dominating and then they took him out. In eight starts where he made it to the fifth inning last year, he was already between 92 to 108 pitches in five of them. And sure, you could say stretch him out when he's at 90 pitches, 10 or 15, but the whole point of the process for the Rays is to try and eliminate that breakdown, take him out before he starts to fatigue. And that's why he's coming out at 90 pitches versus leaving him in there for 10 or 15 in the chance that he does fatigue and give up some hard hit balls and potentially more runs. I mean, if you look at his numbers through the third time through the order, he did it in six of his 11 starts at a 506 ERA and opponents hit 304 and it didn't get much better in the postseason where in four of the six starts, he went and pitched through the third time through the order, just a couple of batters. Uh, hitters were three for 10 with a home run, slugged 700, and he also gave up home runs to the nine hitters before the third time around at two different starts, showing some signs of fatigue here. And I think this is a combo of fatigue and also command. You mentioned he does walk a lot of guys, um, especially in the postseason. Before game six, his previous four starts, he had walked 12 and 18 and two-thirds in innings pitch. Forces your pitch count to get up. And that is a part of Blake Snell's game. He's a little bit effectively wild. He has that hard fastball. You know, it's the top of the league in wild pitches. But if he wants to get deeper in the games and if he's going to say he wants a chance to pitch deeper, he's going to have to be more efficient. And you got to wonder if that's possible with him still maintaining that power stuff that he has. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head, as we like to say right there. Uh, Snell was utilized the way he was with the Rays for a reason, and that is the fact that he is not successful through the third time through the order. Again, the argument that Snell may have here is that well, you only gave me a limited sample size and didn't really give me that many chances third time through the order. But what the Rays saw in that little limited sample size wasn't too promising, so you can't really fault them for not wanting to see too much more of that. Yeah, and also, the Rays' biggest strength is bullpen flexibility and bullpen strength, so why not use that? They're trying to win ball games. Blake Snell through five, five and a half innings, six innings is great. Pass it off to that great bullpen. You might see a little bit of a similar concept with the Padres. I think they'll try to stretch them out a little bit longer. I don't think they have as much depth as the Rays do, but they still had a really strong bullpen last year and are still adding on this year, so I think it'll be probably a little bit similar. I don't think Blake Snell is going to be going seven, eight innings every night next year. I really don't. I think it's going to be about five or six at his best and that's fine that's a great pitcher right there and it gives you a chance to win 
And something that I mentioned to you, because I remember we were talking earlier in the week about this deal, and you were saying, I wonder how the Padres will utilize him. And I brought up Denelson Lamette. They used, they had Denelson Lamette on a pitch count a lot last year, and I know it, and I know this because I had him in fantasy baseball, so I was watching a lot of his <laughs> outings very closely. Uh, it was quite frustrating for me, obviously, as a manager of the heavy hitters fantasy baseball team. But as a Padres fan, the, the, the Padres did a good job. They only had him throw about 90 pitches per start late in the year. For a guy who's had a history of arm injuries, uh, it was a smart way to utilize him. And I think we might see more of the same from Snell. The Padres aren't always a team, and they haven't really had any pitchers to do this with recently. They don't really have any workhorse pitchers, per se. But um, they're used to, to not having guys go too deep into the ball game, so I don't see them really forcing Snell to go deep because that's just not the way that they roll with their pitching staff. Absolutely. And, I mean, we'll see. They'll be under a micro, mi microscope in a way because this is a big story coming in uh, to the 2021 season. And as you said, Snell has been very vocal about it. But he's the one who controls this, in my opinion. You know, it's the pitch count. It's the efficiency. And, again, sure, they could have stretched him out 10 more pitches to try and get through six. But the point here is if you want to go six, seven innings, you know, you got to finish that ball game, finish seven innings around 95 to 100 pitches. If you're at 95 to 100 at the beginning of the fifth, you're in trouble, and there's not much you can do at that point. All right, let's move on to the other big deal. We touched on it a little bit earlier. Let's get deep into this one. The Padres acquired Hugh Darvish and his personal catcher, Victor Carantini, from the Chicago Cubs in exchange for Zach Davies, as well as four young prospects, shortstop Reginald Preciado, shortstop Yison Santana, outfielder Ismael Mania, and outfielder Owen Kaisey. Not an encouraging return for the Cubs. I believe this just has to do with the fact that they wanted to get Darvish's contract off of their payroll, and the Padres took advantage of that, and therefore the return was a little bit cheap. For the Padres, a very good deal. Get a good catcher, and more importantly, another all-star caliber starter. Yeah, and I mean, you said it right there. The Darvish is much was more the same with Snell. The Padres get a great arm for the rotation. But let's turn here to the Cubs. We've been talking about the Padres for quite a bit. Let's touch on the Cubs side of the trailer, and I want to touch on Zach Davies because the other four guys that you mentioned are not going to make an impact from a long, for a long time down the road. They're all pretty much teenagers, relatively unknown commodities that the Cubs are getting back, but they're going to hope that one of these guys eventually blossoms into a star. That's what you're always hoping for when you get these prospects, or at the very least, a contributor at the major league level. But Zach Davies now, He's one of those guys that you look at and you might say, well, what you see is what you get with Davies. He doesn't strike out a whole lot. He pitches to contact. He's had a pretty solid ERA, 379 in 123 starts in his career. Um, that's pretty good numbers when you look at that, especially as of late. In 2019, he had a 355 in 31 starts, 159 innings, only struck out 102, so a pitch to contact approach. And in 2020, he had a 2.73 in 12 games started for the Padres, 69 in the third innings pitched, 63 strikeouts. The strikeout rate went up a little bit. But what I want to touch on here is those ERAs look really nice. But what do you, but if you pull up Baseball Savant and look deeper into these stats, the expected ERAs of those two years were both over five. That's actually kind of fascinating. Clearly, that the results that he's getting are a little bit different than what you might expect based on exit velocity and whatever stats contribute to that expected ERA. This past season, he had a 64% rating in exit velocity, so he was inducing some weak contact, but not, a, not as much weak contact as you would hope for a guy that has, I mean, look, he has a 48% strikeout rate, so I expect that 2.73 ERA to balloon a little bit this year, although, I mean, he's going to eat up innings at worst for the Cubs, and for a team that, well, 
I guess somewhat still expects to contend. I don't know if this is the arm that you're hoping for. He's a solid back end of the rotation guy, but he, I don't think he's that same 273-355 guy that we saw over the past couple of years. I think a lot of those numbers are attributed to some, you know, fortune good fortune on balls in play. Yeah, and I think it really was almost a piece to just help the Cubs have another uh, spot slotted in for the rotation. And you talked about it. And I mean, it's such a different story versus a guy like Blake Snell or Luis Patino and him, because those guys focus on controlling the three big aspects of pitching that the pitcher himself can control, which is striking out batters, walking batters, and the amount of home runs you give up. And part of walking also hit by pitches and so forth. But my point here is, is if you're not going to rely on those, and you're going to rely more on like a Kyle Hendricks uh, Tom Glavin type approach where a lot of balls are put in play against you. You have to be able to be, you know, forcing soft contact. And when you're not, you talked about the 64% hard hit rate. It's going to get you in trouble. And I'm sure that's a part of it. I'm sure good defense behind him for the Padres helped him a lot last year as well. When you have Grisham out there, Machado, Tatis, who made big strides as well. And you got to wonder with the Cubs uh, in Wrigley Field, is that going to help him at all? Is you're pitching to a completely different defense or with a completely different defense behind you? Yeah, I don't want to knock these completely just based on these expected ERA stats because the bottom line is the only stat that really matters is actual ERA. Yes. Not many people should really care besides maybe some talent evaluators or people that are looking to acquire you shouldn't really care about expected ERA. The rest of the people, the fans like you and I, look at the regular ERA because that's the results. It's not the expected stats. It's the actual hard results. And Davies has been successful, like I said, throughout his career. You look at that 379 career ERA. He's found a way to make it work based on his high contact, pitch to contact approach. So it should be a good guy, like I said, to eat up some innings for the Cubs at worst. Yeah, and the past two years combined in 229 innings, 3-3 ERA, which is a very strong sample size. You just got to wonder what that data suggests and maybe he can continue to push forward with it i mean his fit was 436 in that area or in that span as well which kind of supports what we were just talking about so it'll be interesting and again the fact that he's been able to maintain this over 229 consecutive innings in which he's made 43 starts in a season and a half is encouraging in that regard so we'll see how it works out for the cubs i don't think acquiring davies is that big of an acquisition in fact i think he might be a guy to flip at the trade deadline if he's putting up good numbers but again as i just talked about a couple of minutes ago i think it's just to fill in a spot right now as the cubs are in a weird transition process all righty let's move on to the final transaction that the Padres made this week, signing KBO infielder Ha Sung Kim to a four-year $28 million deal with a mutual option for 2025. He put up tremendous numbers um, in the KBO last season. I found a scouting report from Baseball America. I thought it'd be interesting to read it before I get your take on him. I quote, he projects to be an above-average hitter and has enough power to hit 12 to 15 home runs per year in the majors. He's likely to face an adjustment period at the plate when he first arrives to the U.S., but has athleticism to twitch and adjust and eventually hit major league velocity. Uh, not only that, what I found interesting is that the, they said he would be a top 100 prospect if he signed today. So we talked about the strength of the Padres farm system. You're getting a quote-quote top 100 type guy today that will make an impact on opening day for you in 2021. A great move for them if this all works out. Yeah, I'm going to be a little bit negative here. Okay. I don't know if this was the right move for the Padres. They're getting a guy that I think, while he's a very toolsy guy. He's got a lot of power, as you mentioned. He's got good speed. He's very athletic. But I just don't know how well polished he's going to be. We don't see a whole lot of position players come over from Japan, Korea, 
besides maybe a few guys, obviously G-Man is a, is a well-known one. We know um, Matsui a long time ago. Ichiro is the obvious one. But then again, we haven't seen really, I mean, can you think of any really well-known uh, infielders come over there for a while? That doesn't... Uh, uh, Gong kinda... from the Pirates is pretty had a pretty good career before he got into some off-field antics. That's... But besides that, that's the only one that's off the top of my head. Yeah, and that's not to say that he won't be successful. That was more of just me speculating that it's kind of an unknown. It's a big trans- I think, uh, transition, yes. Yeah, and I mean, I look at, um, I'm no scout myself, but when I look at Kim's swing, he seems to have a very long swing, and that might, if, if you were to be a doubter, you might say that that might work a little bit better overseas because you don't see a lot of the high velocity that you see over here in the United States in Major League Baseball, he's going to be facing consistently guys throwing 95-plus. So, it, like you said, it's going to be an adjustment period. Not to say that this swing can't work. I'm just saying I bet you we're going to see his strikeout rate be pretty high when he first starts out. I still think he has the power and the tools to be a successful player. I just think it's going to be a little bit of an adjustment. And that takes me to my point here. The Padres are going to compete right now. They just acquired two of the top pitchers in baseball. So why acquire a guy who's going to be a real toolsy player isn't really that polished and might not be ready to compete at a super high level right now. He's more of a prospect type. I could see this working on a team like the Blue Jays or the Red Sox, who isn't really, you know, fully selling out right now to be a playoff deep in the playoff team. I think the Blue Jays will be a playoff team, but you know what I'm saying? They're a little bit more young and kind of these guys are developing. So I think for Kim, especially since he's not going to really have a solid position set to himself with the Padres, it might have made more more sense for him to go to a team like the Blue Jays, the Red Sox, where he would be the full second baseman, full-time third baseman, and be able to get those at-bats necessary to adjust. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a little bit more pressure on him, like you talked about, because the Padres are in a more win-down situation. Here's what my expectations are for him. I definitely think the numbers are going to drop from the KBL, because that's basically what happens almost every single time uh, a player comes from a different country to Major League Baseball. In 138 games last year in the KBO, he had 30 home runs, 100, 109 RBIs, hit 306 in OPS at 921. You know, those are MVP caliber numbers throughout the Major League Baseball level. I don't think he's going to be there. I think it's probably going to be more of like a 250, 260 hitter, OPS 750 to 800 range at the best next season. And I think that's good for the Padres is he's a little, he's very versatile, can play all around the diamond besides first base on the infield. And I think, you know, it's a team-friendly deal, $7 million a year for four years. I don't think it could hurt them in any way. If anything, it's more for Kim. It just might not be the best fit for him. But for them, I think it just gives them another solid piece that gives them more depth and allows them to give other guys days off and explore different positions on the field. My thing more where I was knocking the Padres a little bit, I'm not really even knocking them a whole lot because they did get a guy who, like you said, is very talented, is going to be a top 100 prospect, and has had great results in a league that's pretty competitive. Uh, the one thing I was kind of going with that is if you're going to have a guy for your bench where Kim is most likely going to start out, obviously that is barring any injury. I just think that would have been more, made more sense to the Padres to sign a veteran guy like Listella if you're going to acquire more depth. Or you probably could have got him. Yeah, or a Profar type guy who's had experience in that role as a utility player versus a Kim who's used to settling in at one position and getting those consistent at bats. But I still think, like you said, it's not a it's not a bad deal. It's just maybe not the ideal deal for yeah, them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And you know, it does pose the question: What are you going to do? Let's say Kim gets off to a good start and you want to play him every day. The perception is that he'll probably start at second base, which interestingly enough. 
He's only played 15 innings there in his life in the KBO career when he was 18 years old in 2014. Transition from shortstop to second base shouldn't be hard for him. But if you have him at second base, then Cronenworth moves to left. Then you have Pham there as well. You could platoon or rotate starts with them. But both of those guys are very good players as well. Then you have Grisham in center, Myers in right, who's on a big deal, who had a great year last year as well. There's no DH in the NL as of now. I'm sure they would love to have it. There is, it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to try and manage that if Kim does actually move into an everyday starting role because you have so many moving pieces. Yeah, and what we're tr- actually seeing here developing in front of our very own eyes is the Padres trying to bum the Dodgers a little bit here. And the Dodgers are a team who has consistently had people say, well, they have very good players Like at every, at every position. We got guys on the bench who could be starting everywhere else. But that's what the Dodgers do. They have a bunch of very good players. So if somebody like a Mookie Betts, uh, God forbid, or a Cody Bellinger goes down and is out for the season with an injury, they have somebody who can slot right, right in there and replace them. Obviously, Peterson's gone right now, but he's been that guy in, in years past. Chris Taylor's been a guy who hasn't really had a position solid. We saw Max Muncy for a few years not really have a set position. And those guys are just a bunch of really good players who can mix and match at different positions and allow the Dodgers to have an above-average lineup out on the field every night and that's what the Padres are trying to replicate here you can't really fault them for that seeming they've watched the Dodgers crush them in years past using this very exact format no doubt and I think that was perfectly said right there and I think a lot of fans I've seen on Twitter are asking why why are they acquiring all these starting pitchers when they have Gore coming up when they have Weathers more home and so forth why are they acquiring a second baseman when they have a rookie of the year finalist in Cronenworth over there? And I think the point is, is especially during an 162 game season, you can't rely on the same nine, 10 starters to stay healthy offensively. And then your five rotational guys, not only that mixing and matching the rules, allowing to get other guys days off and so forth is super imperative in a long season. And I think that's what's worked for the Dodgers, a tremendous connection that you made right there. And you're right. They've been watching it for their own eyes for the last four or five years, 19 times a year. Uh, plus the postseason last year too so why not copy the best at it and that's what they're doing all right let's move to a new segment we have here we had the trivia last week that was our first edition of the trivia now we have the first edition of the Matanzas matchup in which we'll be picking three prompts each month where each prompt is one point each and we're basically going to make predictions and if Ryan and I get the predictions right. We will get one point, and they will add up all the way to the end of December, and we'll crown the winner of the first edition of the Tanzerous matchup then. So we have three prompts today. For January, it's going to be based off of January-type-themed baseball questions here. The first one is going to be over or under two-and-a-half top-tier free agent signings. Now, obviously, we don't know what answers we picked yet so we're going to write it down we're on a facetime call i know you guys can't see it we're on a facetime call right now we're going to write our answers down right now and then reveal them at the same time so we know there's no copycat going on um all right so i have my answer down you have your answer down right now over or under two and a half top tier free agent signings and the five guys that we picked were trevor bauer real muto george springer dj lemayhew and marcel ozuna so i'll let you go first will we see three or more of those guys sign or two of, or less of those guys sign? Oh, man, Max, this is really tough. I'm flip-flopping in my brain, but I'm going to go with the answer that I wrote down. It's the unfortunate one for us because we're reporting on these moves all the time. I'm just going to say under. I just have a feeling with the way the market's been moving, which is very slow, uh, that these guys are going to hold out for as long as possible. The one guy that, you know, cues me into maybe a decision, and it's connected to our third prompt here that we'll talk about in a second, is Ozuna. 
Um, and I just don't see, I just don't see any more than two of these guys signing. I think at least two do. I think it's going to be very close. We're going to be probably paying close attention towards the end of the month to see if one of these deals gets done. But for me, I just don't see more than two. I think these guys are going to hold out for as long as they can. I'm glad you said that because I'm the opposite. I'm going to be a little bit more positive here in this situation. That's good. That's good. We got differences here. So now we're not going to tie this week. I do think we'll get three or more in this case. I, we haven't seen these many, this many free agents left on the market in a while here. I know Machado and Harper were left on for a very long time. And it seems like each year that goes by, the longer everyone waits. But I do think because there's so many players left, once a couple of guys sign, then the market will start to be the side and we'll start to see a little bit of a flow. I don't expect it now. I expect it later in the month. But I got to imagine Springer's on the cusp right now. LeMahieu probably as well with the Yankees pushing. The Dodgers now getting into reportably as well. The Blue Jays have been in it. Ozuna's the one that I think is interesting because the decision on a universal DH is going to affect his market so much, especially if he wants to go back to the Atlanta Braves. If we don't get a decision on that by the end of the month, then there's a problem right there. And that's what I was alluding to with Ozuna. I don't want to give away our answers later in that because it could flip-flop either way, and whichever way that flip-flops will probably impact this first prompt. But, uh, yeah, Springer and LeMahieu, if I had to guess, would be the two free agents that would go first. Although it's really interesting with LeMahieu right now because he could hold out because it sounds like the Dodgers are becoming very involved and uh, that's going to be really interesting for the National League West. And something else that supports your point is if the if spring training and opening day is pushed back, which reportedly it very likely might be, gives them more time to make their decision, and they'll likely push back as well. So we'll see if that could happen. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put some positive energy out there. Let's get some stuff to talk about for us. All right, let's move to the next one here. We'll get an answer on this one for sure. Is on January 26th, we will – Figure out who's inducted into the 2021 Hall of Fame class for Major League Baseball. The question here is how many Hall of Fame inductees will we see? I'm actually going to read off the current results right now. Ryan Thibodeau has done a tremendous job the last few years of reporting the public ballots. Currently, we have 115 ballots known, which is about 29% of the entire uh force of baseball writers who are voting currently this year. Kurt Schilling is at 71.3%, Bond 73, Clemens 72.2, Roland 67.8, Helton 53.9, Sheffield and Wagner making big jumps as well at 48 and 52, and Andrew Jones 43 and a half. Big jumps for those bottom five guys. Schilling and Bonds and Clemens are kind of staying where they were last year. Ryan, how many Hall of Famers do we see this year? Well, I'm just going to continue being the pessimist here. I'm going to say zero Hall of Famers, unfortunately. I just don't see Kurt Schilling getting in. He seems like the obvious candidate who, sh- who should have been elected this year, but you know we, t- we spoke about his antics, and I don't really feel like getting a whole lot more into that one. Um, so he's close. The other guy who I think would be the second most likely to potentially get in would be a shocker candidate here, and that's Scott Rowland. He's actually trended up quite a bit, as you kind of touched on there. 67.3% he's at right now, trending up uh, as high as he's been in any previous year. So... He's a really interesting guy. The only thing that makes me a little bit pessimistic about him is that the remaining ballots that haven't been released are a little bit of the non-progressive voters, so to speak, who probably won't be as high on Roland. So that's what's leading me to believe. And, and plus, the steroid guys I'll touch on as well, they're just not getting in this year. Yeah, and you know what? I didn't think you were going to say it, but I said that too. Zero, I do. And I just don't think it's enough. I think with Schilling, Bonds, and Clemens – 
it's hard to overturn voters' views on them, right? Because of the baggage that comes, or it's the PEDs or the politics with Schilling. And it doesn't seem like they've made much gains. I think Schilling's actually lost three votes from returning voters and only gained one. It's similar with Bonds and Clements in that case. And they were actually a smidge higher at this point last year as well, through 110. 115 ballots or so. So I think they're trending a bit downwards. So I think they'll be close. For the other guys, they're going to make have to make tremendous jumps. I looked at it. Thibodeau tweeted tweeted it out a year ago. Walker's jump of 22% last year between 19 and 20 was the seventh greatest jump of percent since 1967. The highest was Luis Aparicio from 82 to 83, which he jumped 25 and a half percent. So for Roland to gain or to get inducted, that would be a 40% jump, which is a ton. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it would be unheard of at this point. And for Wagner, Sheffield, and Helton, it would be the same. While I think they will make big jumps, it seems that where we are right now at 30%, it always goes down because there's a lot of ballots remaining and a lot of people who don't become public because they're controversial to people like us. Um, And that's why I I don't think anyone's going to get in either. Well, I was going to try to be positive and say that the surprise candidate to get in would be Roland, but you said it right there. That that statistic just kind of dashes any hopes that no, he might have happen. of getting in. No, it definitely can, but let's be a little bit more realistic here. It's probably not going to happen. I, I was on the fence, so you, I was believing a little bit that it might be, but right before you asked me, I changed my one to a zero, and I just I just don't think it's going to happen, unfortunately. If Roland gets Obviously, in, if Roland gets in, technically both you and I would not get a point, but I'll give you a point for that, for that all right? All right. There there we go. go. All right. All right. My positivity and then switching it to a pessimist viewpoint. Now it's a win-win. Great. Perfect. Perfect. But only if Roland gets in. Schilling or Bonds, no, no. All right. Let's move to the final one. This is one of the hardest ones. All of them are worth all one point, though. But it's, it's will we get a decision on the universal DH as well as the expanded postseason by the end of January? What's your thoughts on this? Well, more doom and gloom for me. We are not getting a decision on this. I think Major League Baseball and the owners are going to hold out as long as they can. They're going to wait on the length of the season first and then use that as a wager to try and get their expanded playoffs because, you know, maybe if we had the full 162, people would be less keen to have expanded playoffs. But if they have the limited season anyways, they might say, oh, okay, well, there's already less games, so we might as well throw the expanded playoffs so I hope that's the case. I hope we do find a decision. And same thing with the DH, too. I think if there's any change in the number of games, that will be used for the DH as well. And we've heard talks between the players and the owners that these two are kind of a package deal right now. You either have universal DH and expanded playoffs or no universal DH and regular playoffs. So I think they're, they're a package deal, like I said, and I don't think we're going to learn about either of them in this month. Yeah, and I think the CBA negotiations will play a role and stall it a little bit as well. I said no, too. And what I think actually really helps the owners in this case is that if the season's pushed back, again, like I talked about with the free agents, it gives the owners more time to make this decision here. Because obviously the owners really want expanded postseason for money. The players want universal DH more money for them, obviously, as well. And, I mean, let's be real here. Not that this is going to happen again, but they didn't decide – (laughs) or they didn't expand the postseason last year until a couple hours before that opening night game between the Yankees and the Nationals. So they could wait as long as they want at this point, I guess, until first pitch. I don't think it's going to be that late, but I I think especially if the season is delayed, we probably won't get an answer until mid to late February, um, which is a shame because it really 
are really makes it difficult for teams who might want to go get a Nelson Cruz or Roberto Ozuna and Hertz Cruz and Ozuna as well because you know their market's cut in half. Marcelo Ozuna, yeah, like you mentioned. Uh, did I say Roberto Ozuna? Anyone, you did, yeah. Oh, I just, my fault. You know, my I, fault. I got I got your back. I know what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Ozuna was the guy I alluded to earlier, and that's what I was saying. I don't think Ozuna's going to sign until after this decision because that's what 15 more teams. More, 15 more teams. I'm losing my mind here. Yeah, that opens up 15 more teams for him to potentially sign with. Uh, and yeah, so that he won't sign until that decision is made. And that could be as late as Major League Baseball wants, as you said. All right, let's go through our decisions one more time here. Our first edition of the Matanzas matchup, the three prompts over or under two and a half top tier for the agent signings, which consists of Trevor Bauer, JT Romito, George Springer, DJ LeMahieu, and Marcel Ozuna. I said the over, which means three or more. Ryan said the under, which is two or less. How many Hall of Fame inductees will we see? Both Ryan and I said zero. And then will we get a decision on the universal DH as well as the expanded postseason? Both Ryan and I, Ryan and I said zero. So there will be no tie. One of us is going to win this month or lose this month. But whatever the case is, we got 11 more editions uh, of this as well. Yeah, there you have it, folks. And it's going to be coming down to the wire at the end of the month. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping we got two free agent signings and we're waiting to see. Maybe we'll see somebody on the fence there coming down the wire. And hopefully I end up pulling it out over Max. All right, everyone. We hope you have a great week. We thank you so much for joining into our show. We heard a lot about the Padres today. We had our first edition of the Matanzas matchup. It's going to be going all through 2021, as Max mentioned, and we'll have a tally up at the end of the year. Thanks, you guys, so much for joining once again, and have a fantastic week.